Oh yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like three. Yeah. And uh, there's another and one. And Manchester Red Sea, I think, is pretty. Yeah, I think it's more or less. It's a little yeah. bit further south, I think. Okay. People ask for Massachusetts shopping. Oh no. No ways to my pizza shop, my library, my movie theater. Chinese food store. Yeah. The Chinese, uh, I can tell you a little bit about Chinese restaurants in the greater Boston area. But, like, where Springfield is, most authentic the Boston uh, culture is. Mm-hmm. Especially the ones in the uh, the inner suburbs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. China defense. Very much so. You know what's interesting, actually, when you say that? Let's, let's fade in on this. So, you know what's interesting when you say that is that um, um, I'm really glad we're talking about comedy today. Because Boston is a legendary comedy town. It is. You know? I mean, Bill Burr. Bill Burr. I mean, well, that not just that, but like, when you think about comedy, there's like New York, there's like LA, you know, there's spots in between, I'm sure, that are kind of known for comedy. But Boston was like, I mean, the clubs here were always better, they, people said, better audiences, smart crowds, creative crowds. And uh, the locations were kind of like ad hoc. It was like the back of Chinese restaurants, people's basements, you know, bars and stuff like that. There's a really good documentary called When Stand Up Stood Out about the Boston comedy scene, particularly in the 80s, 70s, 80s. And it was wild, man. Just dudes going, doing a set and then just running off into the night and just partying their brains out. Um, So we got local. We got Bill Burr, uh, Louis C.K. is a local, uh, Nick DiPaolo is a local, um, Robert, uh, what's his name? A bunch of locals. <laughs> More than one. More than one, indeed. And uh, and that's kind of a cool thing to say about us. Like, we, this is a good city for comedy. It doesn't seem like it is so much anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what was, like, a big deal back in the day was that it was, like, an emerging thing. Mark Maron spent a lot of time here. Mm-hmm. Came to, like, cut his teeth in the Boston comedy scene. David Cross cut his teeth in the Boston comedy scene. Uh, Pete Holmes is from here. Sarah Silverman is from New Hampshire. So, I mean, counts as a Berliner. Um... So it's like, you know, this is kind of where you went to get some really cutting-edge stuff happening. Patton Oswalt spent some time here, if I'm not mistaken. So it's like New York and L.A. are the big fish, but this is where you would kind of do your fun little creepy. San Francisco and Boston are, like, known for being, like, really good comedy places. There's smaller markets, I guess, but, you know, you can you can try out your stuff or you can get inspired, I guess, from, from the weirdness. That's but, exactly what happened to a lot of people, yeah. But uh, it's it's all very kind of mainstream now I think I think most people that do comedy now do it through improv right and improv uh, classes and uh, theaters that also do stand-up mm-hmm. it's like almost like improv is the, uh, the entree now and the stand-up is the uh, the steak dinner the steak dinner <laughs> chicken dinner <laughs> the chicken dinner the winner winner chicken dinner the, the, the chicken dinner that you get uh, as in, in lieu of payment yeah exactly well uh, what was it in New York I think the comedy store they paid you in hummus. <laughs> Somebody had like a plate of hummus that was like that was your your gift for the night. Like John Sturry's talking about that. It's like you have a bad set, you go upstairs, you got the hummus. It's like any of these creative arts though, where um, people expect you to basically work for free. Oh, of course. For as long as you possibly can. Right. And then if you don't make it, then you're dead. Right. And if you do make it, then you know maybe you get a big payday. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've right. talked about this before, like the uh, the career arc of the comedian. Right. Um, I don't I think you have a theory of that. Did I? I am known for my theories. <laughs> I have so many theories. I have theories about my theories. Alright, welcome back to uh, the uh, continuously untitled Artsuse podcast. This is the second episode. Tragically. Uh, we are throwing around some, some, some title ideas. 
if anyone out there is listening, feel free, freer than free, free as a proverbial verb, to uh, send us some ideas about what you think the podcast could be titled. Um, we had a bunch of things that were tossed around for a while. Um, I like some of them. They really weren't that good, but I like them probably. We talked have, a lot about bonfires. Takes. Bonfires. I like the idea of a bonfire, but not of people. I don't believe in that. Or books. I don't believe in that either. I don't know. We're trying to be smart, witty, clever. and uh, Trying. And, uh, apparently we're not. I mean, I'm trying. I, wh- whether or not it succeeds is up to you, the beloved listener. Uh, and if you don't remember from the first episode, I'm still Lucas Spiro. I'm Matt Hansen. And uh, today we have a very special uh, episode for you guys. Uh, it's kind of a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal to me, at least. Uh, it's a get. I guess, yeah, I gotta get. You gotta get. I guess I gotta get. But we, we should, we should. Gets play, got. Let's just play it cool, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Turn off the juice, boy. Yeah. Right? Easy does it, man. Right. And, um... We are uh, going to talk, as you already know, a little bit about comedy, uh, specifically political comedy uh, on the left. And I want to sort of like start it off in the the early 21st century political comedy, which we all sort of know and love, but we did at one point, which is the kind of Jon Stewart antidote to the Bushier madness kind of political now, comedy has always been political. It's probably the easiest uh, form to uh, jab at your uh, authorities and powerful figures, yep. uh, institutions, uh, going as far back as you know, Greek dramas and comedies. Oh yeah, not dramas, comedies. Uh, you're you're always trying to find trying to find ways to critique the uh, the power structures, and comedy continues to be this, and I think it's even more so now. But there's a lot of people trying to do it, and there's very few people I think doing it well. And there's a lot of people, I think, still sort of caught in the 21st, early 21st century John Stewart sort of idiom of, of, of comedy. And later on in the episode, you're going to hear an interview with one of the uh, hosts and uh, original members of the uh, comedy political leftist podcast, Chapo Trap House. Uh, they've recently released a book. The book is The Chapo Guide to Revolution. Um, a Manifesto Against Logic, Facts, and Reason by Chapo Traphouse, which is Felix Biederman, Matt Chrisman, Brendan James, Will Meneker, uh, and Virgil Texas. Um, and one of the other members the of the name's team. Virgil Texas? The name's Virgil Texas. That's a heck of a name. It is a great name. Um, His birth name? His mama name? You'll have to ask him. I will have to know someday. Uh, one day, he might find out. Yeah. Um, but we reached out to them and we said, do you want to come on the podcast and talk about your new book? And we are but a fledgling podcast. Right. Uh, but Baby Bird. Much like uh, uh, the Velvet Underground is the band that launched a thousand bands. Yes. Chapo Travis is sometimes considered to be the podcast that launched a uh, thousand podcasts. And the podcast is kind of maybe the 21st century's answer to uh, a garage rock band. Sure. I don't, I don't know, know if we uh, can... Alternative magazine, maybe like your alternative weeklies, because um, you know like, there was like zines and stuff back in the punk era, and even before then there was like kitchen table weeklies, like I have Stone's radical journalism and stuff like that, Dwight McDonald and all that. And in the same way that you would go to an alternative weekly or an alternative um, zine, is because it's probably going to be very specific to yeah. a particular kind of taste, right, or a particular topic. Unlike this podcast, which. <laughs> Has, has absolutely no moral center whatsoever. <laughs> we oppose the tyranny of cohesion and coherent 
incoherent ideologies. We are sans moral center. We are libertines of the word. And so Chapo sort of sprung up in the uh, during the um, 2016 Democratic primary, and uh, they were pretty much convinced, much like most of the country, that uh, our, our next president is going to be a Democrat uh, and not not what we currently have. And they decided that now was the time for them to sort of test out some of these like things that they've been doing, basically in kind of like, this is also another weird thing about the way people that actually like do comedy become comedians. They started off, I guess, as minor Twitter celebrities, <laughs> which I, I, I don't know. Just keep posting is their advice to people. And eventually one day somebody will give you a podcast. So I guess that's how it works. Um, or even like not that somebody gives it to you, but like you will just create a podcast yeah. and you'll have followers, right? And it'll really just be two guys in a room with microphones and there'll be whatever, a thousand people, two thousand people listening to you. And they blew up because they had the, um, the goal to be completely irreverent of all of the uh, things that uh, uh, liberals... Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the established sort of pundit class of uh, mainstream cable news, uh, mainstream uh, broadsheets like the New York Times and Washington Post opinion sections, uh, what they considered to be the broad political culture. Uh, Chapo Traphouse basically had said, you know, there is, there is, um, there's nothing sacred in this realm, and it, it all sucks, and it's time for us to sort of um, either force the issue about moving to the left. And, uh, or, you know, just accept that this is the crappy system that we have. Uh, and they did it through irreverent humor as opposed to, you know, uh, like the communists of yore, uh, <laughs> rambling with, uh, and trying to force, uh, uh, your, your crappy newspaper in the hands of unsuspecting college students that just showed up for the, uh, who are just there for the, the pot cookies. For the, for the pot cookies. Yeah. yeah. They just wanted the dope. Yeah, and the Jefferson Airplane concert or whatever. I burned my draft card and I wasn't sure what else to do, so. Right, I burned my draft card and all that got me with these lousy Crosby, Stills, and Nash tickets. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also because the left has a, uh, has a um, the radical left, I should say, has a history of being a bit soulless and cold. And, and clinical. Uh, clinical. Um, and Dogmatic. So, the right was winning the culture war in terms of uh, memes, um, you know, uh, uh, lionizing and championing things like political incorrectness, unless you're uh, Mr. Moore, you know, who, who was kind of the uh, the king of uh, look at me, I'm not the PC right mentality and uh, masquerading as a comedian. Um, and the right also like kind of sort of got in touch with its. Um, it's uh, iconoclastic side, let's say. So it was anti-PC, but it was also like, no, you know what? Screw the media. CNN's the Clinton News Network. It's the liberal media. It's the liberals that are against us all. It's the liberals that are against us. And that's why you're not getting a real story, which is now, of course, mutated into the hideous uh, orange monster that occupies um, like 60% of Pennsylvania Avenue. But like, yeah, I, that was something was really weird for me because like I kind of came into political consciousness in the early aughts and like you kind of noticed how conservatives had all kinds of aggressive swagger. They were the ones that were like, we're taking over the machine, man. Like, you know, that used to be something that you expect hippies to say. And one of the ironies is that for, for as much as like, the, you know, 
the liberal establishment, you know, put that in some big air quotes if you want or whatever, because these massive corporations are not in any stretch of the imagination, you know, nice, uh, you know, mm -hmm. mom and pop shops of people, you know, giving right. back to the community and employing people. I mean, they're, they're, they're massive, you know, uh, conglomerates that happen to also have a TV channel. Um, but uh, the fact that the, that the liberal comedians, your John Stewart's, your Stephen Colbert's, um, anybody on Comedy Central for the most part, um, were considered, you know, the best, you know, in, in terms of comedy and humor um, and, and dominating the cultural discourse. The cultural wars themselves were, you know, I guess by evidence by things like the, the, the Bush administration, later on the Tea Party, uh, a number of um, political backlashes, uh, including uh, all of the, the vitriol that came out of um, uh, the Obama years as well. Um, uh, they were still more or less, more, they were less coherent, but more emphatic, I guess, less snarky. The right was? Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, snarky, but they were very much, um, I would say they were definitely snarky, but they had this, like, profound sentimentality around certain things. Like Reagan was this kind of untouchable hero in so many ways. And Bush was was treated like he was this like, um, like he, he uncritical about people like George W. Bush, who really, I mean, I'm sorry, but it's not that hard to see through him as kind of like a uh, an empty suit in a lot of ways, an empty pair of cowboy boots, as it were, right? And I feel like um, that was something that kind of helped propel them culturally forward because they were willing to believe in these kind of uh, shibboleths. Whereas the left didn't really want to hold anything sacred, and so they'd make fun of everybody. And it's kind of hard to rally around something where you think everything's ridiculous. Un unless you did it from left, like what we know as left at that point, which is kind of where Chapel Trap House is now. Um, and it's, 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 it's interesting because now it's the, uh, it's, it's the shibboleth of you know, the, the, the liberal political establishment class that says to people like Chapo, no, you're, you're ruining elections, you're, you're, you're actually helping the other side. Um, we don't understand when you're being ironic, uh, which, you know, to, to, to be fair, you know, sometimes, you know, irony does have its limits and you do have to put yourself in a position to have a, uh, a real optimistic political project. But when so many people who are, you know, these kind of younger, uh, you know, disenchanted, debt-ridden millennials uh, watch their, you know, precious political systems or what they're told are precious political systems from much older people writing in things like the Washington Post and the New York Times and Politico and talking at them from MSNBC and CNN, and if they even watch those or read those publications anymore at this point, um, the younger generations, that is, uh, and don't just, you know, share memes that they take as, as truth, um, then, oh, what was I going to fucking say? Well, it's interesting that, like, the, the kind of like juice that Chapo has now culturally is that it's really tapped into something that I think has been kind of vacated since like since John Stewart left. It's kind of picked up in some ways. I mean, I wrote I hate to do the shameless plug, but I did write a big piece about John Stewart for the um, for the Fuse back when he retired or left the Daily Show. And you know, my whole thing was is that he he was somebody who made progressive liberal leftist, whatever you want to call it, politics, palatable to me because I was just 22, 21 years old. I was in college. I'd never really been all that political before that. And then he made it accessible to be able to think about these kinds of things in a funny way, in a welcoming way. 
this is very intimidating when you don't know about what the capital gains tax is or the you know American foreign policy or something. These are big topics and like really smart people argue about them. And if you don't feel like you have that kind of background, then you're like, what is all this? And you kind of want to walk away. And so he was a big part of me becoming politicized. And it was definitely like catharsis and encouragement to, to watch him every night, which I did religiously. And for me anyway, and there's an argument to be made that like that kind of um, that kind of politics, that kind of comedy was um, just like cheap laughs without actually inspiring anything. And for me, that's not the case. And for a lot of people I know, that was not the case. It actually inspired us to, to be more active and vocal. And I did activism stuff for different liberal causes for years. And part of the reason why I did that was because John Stewart made it okay for me to do that. He kind of gave me permission to do that. The way when you hear a musician who does music different, it gives you permission to explore your own vision. And um, so after he left, you know, I feel like there's been kind of a hole in the culture that, that is not necessarily completely empty because you can watch John Oliver, you can watch The Daily Show now, and I'm, I'm pro Trevor Noah, but there's a sense of um, what he did to break through into a certain um, like satirical cultural space needs to be filled again. They have to continually be reinventing it. Now it seems... Maybe Chapo's doing that. It's, it seems much more like hackers now. And, you know, just yeah. putting in your, your, your daily labor to, uh, to, 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 to poke at the relatively easy target when it comes to comedic material that is the current president and administration. They're both horrifying, but also it's just, it's just too easy. And right. when, uh, you know, to, much to, to even Chapo's surprise, as they admit, and they're both in, you know, on the show that they they really did think that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and that when she didn't, they thought their show was over, because they thought they were just going to fall into that, you know, same safe John Stewart Daily Show uh, late night talk show type humor. So like if you're watching the late night talk shows now, whether it's um, uh, uh, Colbert, uh, Fallon, or uh, Meyer. Um, they're basically doing the same program every night in the same monologue, using the same uh, material that you know just comes from that day's absolutely insane, bonkers news cycle. Um, and now it is more cathartic, I think, and and does actually debilitate people to take any real political action if that's what they want to do, if that's you know what their persuasion is. Um, and so, I think Chapo is pretty necessary. They can piss a lot of people off, which is fine because. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're interested in seeing uh, Chapo Trap House live in the New England area, they are playing the Wilbur Theater in Boston uh, this coming Friday, the uh, 14th. Yes, the 14th. And then a number of other uh, New England venues around the area. Uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and then Hamden, Connecticut, and then back down to Brooklyn if you want to make the trip to New York. Um, so go check them out if you like what you hear. And buy the book. But uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to have the um, critic for the Arts Views, Eric McCander, uh, who wrote the review in the magazine about the Chapel's Guide to Revolution, the new book from Chapel Trap House, read a little bit from what he wrote as an introduction, and uh, then we're going to dive right into the interview with Matt Kirsten, who uh, we're incredibly grateful to for taking the time to talk to us, because uh, as I said, we're both fledgling pod podcast. And they are now podcast gods. <laughs> we're not. We're not. It's not
First off, for those whose brains haven't yet been boggled by the internet, this book was not penned posthumously by a Mexican drug lord. The Chapo Guide to Revolution was written by four current hosts, Will Meneker, Matt Crispin, Felix Biederman, and Virgil Texas, and one former producer, Brendan James, of the podcast Chapo Trap House, which since 2016 has chronicled current events in American politics from a leftist perspective. The podcast scorns conservatives' efforts to transfer wealth upwards from average Americans, as well as establishment liberals' impotent efforts to stop them. Some critics deride the program for its ironic tone and reliance on in-jokes, but others, including me, find the show's irreverence bracing and hilarious, its political analysis fresh and shrewd. So we're talking here with Matt Christman of the cult podcast Chapo Trap House. Uh, and podcast includes members uh, Felix Biederman, Matt Christman, Will Maneker, and Virgil Texas, as well as Amber Lee Frost. Um, they have a new book out, The Chapo Guide to Revolution, A Manifesto Against Logic, Facts, and Reason. Uh, it's recently become a bestseller on the New York Times list, uh, which is pretty uh, incredible. Um, and it's got excellent art by uh, Ellie Valley, who's uh, the creator of Diaspora Boy, as well as John White. Matt, thanks a lot for being here with us. Thank you for having me. So I was wondering if you'd want to talk uh, a little bit about kind of the process of, of writing the book itself, of how how you kind of produced one coherent product with five different authors and how how you you tried to, I guess, capture the spirit of the podcast in book form. Uh, it was a combination. One part of the book was written in, in that we would just assign people things that we thought they had a specific take on and wanted to work out. Uh, I had a hard time with that. I really couldn't take the assignments. I, that blank page was very intimidating to me. So uh, the other main way we did it is we would just talk subjects out at a table. We would just sit around the table and and say, okay, what do we want to say about this? just sort of like a podcast creation in that we would sort of talk it out and in the course of the conversations would sort of generate points and jokes and uh, structure. And then we would just take notes as we talked. And then eventually one of us would volunteer to sort of put meat on the bones with the, with the pros. But that was the main, main way. It was, it was actually very collaborative that way. That shows there are a few a few sections where I have an idea just being familiar with the show and, and what you guys are sort of interested in individually. I get a sense of what person might have driven a couple of the sections, but for the most part, it does feel really kind of cohesive. Yeah, that was a big concern. We didn't want it to sort of be lumpy and, and, uh, and uneven. Right, right. You guys could have, I guess... I mean, you made the decision to, to actually write a book, you know, as opposed to, you know, just like uh, doing like a best bits of like things from the show and just written those. Was there something like a larger idea behind wanting to write a book that had uh, these six specific pieces to it? You know, work, culture, media, uh, world history, uh, libs and conservatives, or uh, or did that just sort of uh, grow organically? Yeah, I mean, we 
the, the original concept for the book was was more complicated. It was supposed to be sort of a revolutionary uh, guidebook in the model of, of like Gaddafi's Green Book or the Little Red Book. Uh, and then there was going to be marginalia from, from like the, uh, the FBI and something. It was going to be a, a much more uh, high concept thing. And over time, we just realized that, uh, that it was hard to sustain that kind of thing for long. And it also requires you to sort of be genuinely ironic in writing in a way that is difficult to sustain. So essentially, we eventually we just sat down and said, okay, well, what do we want to talk about? What do we we actually want to what points we want to make and in the course of talking about those we sort of emerge what emerged was what the subjects were and we just sort of decided to organize the chapters around those specific things that we all agreed we wanted to have some sort of commentary on and as far as considering it both kind of a political manifesto even though it's more of a um like a uh, a whirlwind cataloging of american yeah. bullshit yeah uh, uh, how much did you uh, also as far as like it being like a comedy book as well or at least a, a book of a comedy uh, uh, podcast because like I laugh all the time when I listen to the show and there are genuinely funny parts in the book but because I maybe because I read it quickly or because I was you know reading it for the purposes of doing this interview or something I was a little bit more serious but I, I felt I found myself you know uh, berated over and over again with all of the horribleness that I know to be true and yet have been bashing my head against, you know, the walls of uh, dead-end conversations with all the people that do attack in the book. So at a certain point, did you think it wasn't even, like, funny anymore or it's just, like, so tragic that you can only laugh at it? Yeah. Personally, that is sort of the un... That's the unavoidable reaction I have to all this stuff is that I have to contextualize it with humor for my own sanity and just out of a weird compulsion. So it's it was always going to be uh, like edge that way with comedy. Yeah, I I think there are definitely moments in the book that are kind of not because of the book itself, but just because of the realities they're discussing that are kind of difficult. But I, I think the humor in it makes that a little more manageable, a little easier to digest than it would be otherwise. And just a straight um, reckoning of, of everything that's going on and all of the problems that are ongoing in the world. Yes. The environmental stuff especially. I mean, that's that's hard to deal with even with humor, but I think without it, that would be just almost torture. Yeah. Yeah, too much to handle. Yeah. Is this a kid's book, Matt? There are, is a confession <laughs> in it, so if you've got children and they want to do a, a connect-the-dot puzzle that gives Donald Trump a giant dick, uh, they can do that. <laughs> They want to play a word game where all word uh, jumble where all the hidden words are related to Pizzagate. They can do that. Yeah, the only one I found is handkerchief. <laughs> oh, there's more. Yeah, I found a couple that's in just, there. That's just how bad I am at words. <laughs> um, one of the reasons I asked though is because um, so I, I used to be a, a substitute teacher uh, in the town that I live in, and I would see these stray copies of a. Uh, Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the, of the United States um, lying around, and 
in all of the history or social studies or English classes that I that I subbed for, I never once had a lesson plan in front of me where Howard Zinn's uh, People's History was referenced or anything like that. So I think they were just like brought in by teachers and, you know, left around in classrooms. But I've for a long time thought that American high schools, maybe even middle schoolers, could benefit a lot, even though there's, you know, things in, in Zinn's book that maybe uh, are uh, sort of glossed over or they're not uh, uh, elaborated well enough. Uh, could learn a lot from that kind of, from reading that history and only that history. And the kind of history that you provide in the first section of the book about essentially the, the, the United States' position in, uh, in creating an empire in the 20th century. If we only taught that, do you think we would have a better chance in the future of actually enacting some sort of legitimate political change? And can your book help with that? Or is your book uh, not meant to do that? I, I mean, I, I, I like to think that the book could be one of those things that a young person encounters and then it makes them think differently after they've encountered it. Uh, and, and that is a, an experience that people are going to have uh, for different reasons uh, if we're going to have any kind of change for sure. Uh, and I would, I would be very ha happy if, if even for a small number of people the book did that. So I was wondering also if uh, we can talk for a moment about the culture chapter, specifically um, prestige TV, which I know is something that you you're not a particular fan of, or at least you don't you don't think it deserves the reputation that a lot of uh, current TV critics are kind of giving it. Yeah, yeah. Basically, my thinking is just that that prestige television. Is sought as seen as this thing that emerged as this revolutionary jump in quality of television, and then television eclipsing all other cultural forms as the most meaningful cultural expression, the one where you talk about something basically the modern, the twenty first century equivalent of like the old, you know, modernist literature that would make a book of the month club selections or something because mm -hmm. people don't read anymore. Uh, and every movie is a blockbuster, you know, Marvel thing. So, so that it took that spot, and and the 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 story is really one that it happened because the shows just got so dang good. But I just tend to think that the real reason it happened is because the internet exploded at the same time that this revolution happened, and created an ecosystem, a media ecosystem, where talking about television shows became a profitable niche market. And that meant that there needed to be more talking about television shows. So shows became, by virtue of the fact that they were going to be talked about more, more seemingly thematically rich than maybe they would be otherwise, because that was the that was what the internet was kind of creating to do there with the rise of all these websites that did great clicks by having capsule reviews of shows the moment they were over that people could write in the in the comments about. And and it's that ecosystem that really created the model of prestige TV more so than any kind of real revolution quality. And my my main thing is that like even the best of these shows are 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 constrained by the medium in a way that limits their uh, ability to truly be challenging or off on guard. And that's fine. And I think people kind of misunderstand me when I'm, I'm not saying these shows are bad or you're bad for watching them. Mm -hmm. People are so wound up in the idea that. That their consumption patterns uh, determine their worth as a person. And they can't get that out of their head. What I'm saying is that it is an incomplete cultural diet. And 
the, the rhetoric of prestige TV really is that it's all you need. It's like a cultural multivitamin, and and it really isn't. It's it's, it's a middle brow uh, art form which. I enjoy as much as anybody some of those shows, but but it can't substitute for like an entire cultural diet, and 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 it's really the model of television reviewing and read and discussion and think pieces on the internet that that generated that more than anything else. Yeah, I I would agree that I think the especially the idea that it's that it it's kind of taken over the quality of film. Is is not necessary, or at least that there's more quality TV produced than than film necessarily isn't true because it might not be as immediately accessible as like the Marvel movies and things like that. But there are plenty of fascinating and, and interesting movies that have come out even this year. I think people just have to look harder for them than than necessarily. Uh, TV shows, and they might not yeah. be prepared, or, or they might not be as inclined to do that, I suppose. And the big thing is, people, is, is film can challenge you, and can surprise you, and subvert your expectations in a way that television, by the very nature of the medium, just can't. I mean, mm. television, is, is, television shows are, in some way or another, advertisements for themselves. To watch the episode, to get the show renewed, and that keeps them on a certain sort of track in terms of ability to be narratively uh, daring and alienate the audience. Uh, and that's a thing that a film, a one-off film, can do in a way that I think is still unique relative to television and gets underrated in these conversations. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's totally fair. Uh, I mean, you don't want to turn off your viewership with one really strange episode if that's not what you're known for, but you can go for like a weird downer ending in a, a, a movie that can leave an impression and right, exactly. doesn't require any further commitment. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like other than what, like Sopranos, there aren't really that many uh, surprise endings to TV series. Either. No, most shows want to kind of give the audience uh, a satisfying send off because there's that intimate relationship with television. Whereas movies, I think, can be meaner, which I like. like. Mm. Yeah, I, I personally love when I leave a theater, and uh, the most recent time it happened, I don't know if you saw the film First Reformed. I uh, did! It and, ripped! But uh, it was it was the best ending I thought it could possibly have, because everybody starts grumbling when they leave the theater. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and I, I've been, like, hooked on this idea that, you know, like, we, we need a new sort of, like, Brechtian moment in... Uh, in art and media where it really doesn't fucking matter how the movie ends. It matters what you do when you leave the theater and how do you, um, balance not being completely didactic and, uh, uh, propagandistic with, uh, with a good quality film or compelling narrative that actually does, uh, change your perspective on something or, or invite, uh, a new, a new thinking about something that you didn't think about before. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 getting underrated, I think, because people want to people want to dissect shows schematically uh, and just turn them into puzzles to be solved, and that's I think a unique uh, emanation of that whole uh, genre. We need more contempt for for audiences. Absolutely, <laughs> little piggies. <laughs> where's uh, where's the next Godard 
you know, he just makes ten minute long scenes of people dr- sitting in traffic. Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, that like the one t- I haven't watched it, but from what I've under from what I gather, the one show that sort of fits that that actually hits that is uh, the the new Twin Peaks. Uh, and but you know that is honestly that's a movie guy, that's Lynch, that's a filmmaker being basically given permission by a, a television studio to just basically do what he wants after having accrued an entire lifetime of goodwill. You know, it's very right. sui generis phenomenon. And 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 it, it and I think the reason pe- people freaked out about that show, because it is unlike anything else, and its rarity needs to kind of make you pause when you think about television as a genre. Could you put that on network TV now, though? Because it was on, what, ABC or NBC one in, in the early 90s? Uh, yes, yeah. You know, so I don't think you could put that show on on network television in the 21st century because um, it's on Showtime now. I think the new season or the new. I mean, the, new the main reason you can is because it's not based on anything else. I mean, that's like that's the kind of sad, the funny, sort of ironic thing about the Twin Peaks deal is that yes, it's this daring, formally ex- explored, uh, experimental thing, but it also is the byproduct of the lack of new ideas and the, and the, the mania for just rebooting and bringing back things audiences are familiar with because you're sort of guaranteed, you're very guaranteed eyeballs and, and conversation in a way you aren't by introducing a new thing. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's strange. Like a lot of those shows, like they, I remember like, I don't even know how many years ago they, they rebooted Hawaii five O and I just, gradually well over the course of time i just hear that that's still on and it's been like like nine or ten seasons at this point and oh yeah i i don't i guess i guess there's an audience for that i I, yeah (laughs) i mean there's nothing wrong with like a a police procedural or a courtroom drama or anything i mean like this is this is kind of the uh the uh the horrible diet of American TV that we've all been raised on. And, you know, to some degree, we, we, we can't really say no, uh, you know, all the time. Um, but going back to uh, when Lynch's Twin Peaks first came out, that response to the lack of new ideas, I mean, what the best shows of the 80s that, you know, people think are like the typical best shows of the 80s are police procedurals and stuff, um, probably. Uh, and then the most familiar of familiar shows is probably going to be like something like, um, like Cheers, uh, where it's only set in one place and it's the most familiar place in the bar or in the, in the world, it's the local bar where you're literally never going to have new ideas, you know, circulated. It's just some people rehashing the same arguments over and over again that they've forgotten because they're drunk. And in a sense, that's kind of what television became. Absolutely. I think I'm just going to read, uh, quick passage where you mention avant-garde TV in the book. Uh, uh, it's an inherently middle brown medium dressing up shows with blockbuster production values and big social scenes uh, won't, won't change that it's uh, what you call ice cream for dinner. Aside from surreal 10-minute comedy shown at 4 a.m. on Adult Swim and stuff by brand name weirdos like David Lynch who made their reputation in film, there's no real TV avant-garde. Movies and books as one-off, take-it-or-leave-it pieces of art can challenge and provoke in ways that TV shows always angling for viewers to tune in to the next episode so they get renewed and simply can't, which pretty much sums up your argument. Um, yeah. But I suppose what that prompts is a question about, you know, other than, you know, Twin Peaks, 
which is is really kind of one of a kind and uh, the absurdity of adult swing comedies. Uh, what do you think you could see as a potential uh, avant-garde TV? Or is, is avant-garde TV kind of uh, a, a dead end as far as an artistic endeavor because it has to be so unique and it only happens like in these very, very rare moments? Yeah, that's the thing. It has to be evanescent. And I think it's, it's all... The degree to which the genre is going to evolve is going to be the degree to which it becomes something from the inner, something uh, on the internet, essentially, uh, like the, the 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 decentralization of the of the of the transmission. And streaming services are sort of the first step to that because, like these these uh, channels now are so hungry for content that they'll put out a lot of stuff that maybe wouldn't have been even conceivable as 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 viable on television in, in a previous model. Uh, but it, it will be, yeah, it'll be one-off things that are sort of consumed televisually in the sense that you're watching it on a screen and it's a relatively short length and maybe it's serialized. But it's also, it's going to be uh, on, a, on, a, on a platform like YouTube or something. And, I mean, I, I don't spend enough time on YouTube really to know what's going on there. But uh, but my guess is that it's, if that's where you're going to find anything really kind of uh, challenging. I think uh, you guys feature Vic Berger on your show every once in yes. a while. Um, and that's kind of like the, uh, I think a lot of that kind of content has come out of like what might be a a, a latent adult swim generation or something uh, where you, you have shows like Tim and Eric or whatever, where they are intentionally going for the aesthetic of uh, the public access, you know, television uh, people literally trying to do what they can with what they have. And because everybody has so much more access to simple software and programming and, and, and equipment, uh, it makes it much easier, I guess, for anybody to do that. But I don't know if the distribution channels or if, you know, the, 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 the larger culture is ever really going to sustain a really challenging, you know, YouTube avant-garde, uh, uh, medium. Yeah, you know, you just watch tutorials on makeup or, or yeah, or whisper a bit of videos. Yeah, seriously, the future is Asmir. I mentioned this in my review, but one section of the book I really enjoyed was the taxonomies. And I, I found that very, very relatable. I mean, the, the artwork was incredible from Ellie Valley, uh, grotesque in, in the best possible way for portraying these grotesque people. Um, and yeah, I, I was wondering if you had any any of those in particular that that you think I guess are, are kind of new apparitions and and things that we haven't really seen before? Uh, I mean, some of them are, are, are probably the YouTube logic guy and his cousin, sort of the Keck Lord. Those are 
really pure manifestations of internet culture that has emerged in the last few years and wouldn't really be recognizable to people even 10 years ago maybe yeah uh so those ones for sure that that could actually be the the new frontier of youtube entertainment the three-hour right-wing video blogs no, they are, uh, and the fact that people sit and watch them is just baffling. Yeah, it really does show that people have a different relationship to that stuff that uh, than than I can than I can imagine with media in my life. It goes back to the section in the book about essentially the uh, the, the the shitty uh, state of journalism and yeah. you know print media, uh, especially because now everybody is like. It's, they're either ridiculously skeptical about whatever the media it is that they're consuming, that they're willing to spend three hours listening to a guy, uh, you know, reaffirm all of their uh, nonsense assumptions, or they want, you know, a quick take that everyone's going to look at in what is considered an established medium uh, to to reaffirm, you know, an opposing view to whatever the person watching the the YouTube um, logic man wants wants to hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are just creating their own. Parallel universes, really, where and 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 there is. I think that the, the 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 emergent trend of people willing to sit there and watch someone talk for three hours into the camera, I think, really is just a product of people being crushingly lonely. Mm-hmm. That to me seems terribly tedious. But if you don't really have a lot of human contact, a person looking through the camera at you and talking to you can kind of feel like something close to a friendship. Yeah, I I feel like the the rise of video game streaming kind of is a sort of hits at that idea as well because I feel like even a few years ago the idea of watching someone play video games was not really considered that entertaining or or viable as like a career path for a lot of people but it seems like there is a desire for that to just watch someone's life in some way. Yeah. But you know what it is? Uh, people say, "Who? why would you want to watch video games? But that's a thing people do when they're kids, right? You go oh, over to your friend's house, well, yeah. and you don't have enough controllers, so one or two of you sit and watch the rest of the other ones play video games, and you shoot the shit. And that is an experience I think people want to replicate because they're getting older and they don't have those friendships anymore in their lives. And then they want to recreate that sense of, of camaraderie. Yeah, that, that makes That's what sense. I used to do when I was uh, hiding from my parents when I was stoned. I used to watch my brother play video games. <laughs> I also sucked at video games, so I didn't really want to play yeah, I suppose if we're going to talk about video games, we should probably have a Virgil or Felix on to, uh, to defend the, uh, the new that's, digital media. That's true. We don't want to be too unbalanced. Uh, no, he's very bullish on it. He's 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 basically a transhumanist at this point. <laughs> uh, everything will be Twitch. There will be no other media. There will be no podcasts, no films, no television, no YouTube anymore. Everything will be Twitch. Wow. Everyone will be streaming yeah. and watching streams at all times. And we'll never have to go anywhere or do anything. And... Uh, It'll probably be a much more peaceful world, except for the uh, the alienated labor source that's uh, kept out of view. Yeah, that's the that's always the tricky part. Yeah, 
or maybe well maybe maybe streaming's kind of a new emerging medium maybe we can find some way to get that regulated in a way that hasn't been in the past for for a lot of industries or unregulated i mean like unicorn rights pretty important if you know there's some kind of direct action going on in the other part of the country and you're not really there to to be involved and you want to you know show police brutality as it's happening Oh God! Now I'm imagining a horrible future where a cop is committing police brutality while getting uh, getting gold in the chat. Oh, <laughs> People are tipping him while he's doing it. Uh, okay, maybe maybe this, maybe, whole, this, maybe this is just a bad idea then. that I don't understand. I wanted uh, I wanted Felix to come on and uh, explain V bucks. I don't know if you know anything about what those are. I don't really. Yeah. Apparently, it's a uh, it's that you can do in in Fortnite, and I think it's a scam. I, I I don't understand any of it because I watch their streams sometimes and they get these like these things of like oh thanks for five hundred five hundred quatlus or whatever the hell it is yeah <laughs> I don't know what it is and I know it's not money uh, but it has some sort of monetary equivalent I mean what's the ch- exchange rate is it Bitcoin I don't get it <laughs> I I don't know myself I have no idea so I guess we can sort of switch to the reception of the book we we kind of touched on it before but how the book has been received by traditional outlets uh slate had you on their podcast i believe yeah and does it feel kind of odd being since your your book has done so well is it odd kind of being among the the outlets that you so often kind of criticize and poke fun at Oh yeah, no, it's very weird going into the Slate offices, going to WNPR in New York's uh, Manhattan. Uh, it was it's very uh, surreal, uh, and and it's interesting. But it's interesting hearing the questions because there is this you spend sort of you know your time in this echo chamber where all the stuff you're saying just seems manifestly true and almost self evident, and you talk to people for whom it is absolutely uh, insane gibberish. Uh, the guy, the interviewer for the Slate uh, podcast, said that uh, here in Washington, people they when you they hear you guys' name, they get very angry and they they're convinced that you're going to blow it, you're going to blow uh, the, the the midterms for the Democrats, and just to know people are out there thinking about us in those terms is kind of cool. I have to admit, <laughs> I was pleased to hear that we are we are spoken of in hushed and trembling tones. The corridors of near power, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of impressive. And just the fact that you picked the most absurd name as well, and so people are literally oh, yeah, just no, talking that's... about the uh, the the threat of the Chapo Trap House. Yeah, that's why we really wanted to name the book "Butt Crappened." Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Really yeah. It was to look just like Hillary Clinton's cover, but it was going to say "Butt Crappened," and then everyone was going to have to say "Butt Crappened" in their reviews and stuff. Um, now, put the, as it stands, uh, though. What I'm enjoying is hearing people get really mad at the subtitle a lot. They're like, how can you say, how can you endorse something that says it's against facts? <laughs> you get very triggered if you come at their facts, their precious facties. That's true, that's true. You don't even have alternative facts. You know? Yeah. You, actually, you just have, you just have uh, all of the atrocities that people don't bother to mention. Yeah. I guess it's nothing new, though, that people are always worried about some sort of um, insurgent uh, 
left uh, uh, stealing away votes or uh, ruining ruining the uh, the reasonable moderate centrist position. Yeah, because uh, unlike any other large institution that 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 is dependent upon a consumer or customer or supporter base, when they fail, they blame the voters who didn't pick them, which is not the way to do it because you can't control them. You can only control what you do. And and losing all the time should be a signal not that these people are insufficiently moral or too uh, purist or not realistic enough. It's that, oh, we're doing something wrong because we're not winning. Uh, instead, they want to scold people. I guess the idea is that you're just going to keep scolding people until they knuckle under, and they just admit they just they badger them into voting for you. And uh, the, the record of that is pretty bad, so uh, they should probably cut it out. Well, it's the uh, Anton Chigurh that you use as sort of a, a motif yes. in the book. <laughs> if uh, if it got you, if the rule got you to, to this point, then. Of what use was the rule? Of what use is the rule, indeed. And that's the thing that we keep getting over and over again, is these guys, they just, their absolute smirking certainty that their way is the only way, and this this absolutely delusional refusal to reckon with the fact that it has failed, and that they don't even have a plan to make it succeed. It's just to keep trying, and eventually people will come to their senses, because Trump is going to be too, uh, he's going to eventually just go too far and, and violate that last red line of, of civility that people are just going to snap out of. It. Uh, yeah, I mean, not, that is, that is, that's fantasy. I think, I think this is the, uh, so people talk about Trump delusion of among his, you know, most, uh, uh devoted base supporters, uh, about how they, they don't see the facts and the things that he does, but I think they probably see him more honestly than, uh, a lot of the centrists and liberal critics of them do because they ha they suffer from a different form of Trump delusion, as you just described, where there is no point, I don't think, where he literally becomes unpalatable to a huge proportion or a huge portion of people in, in, in the country um, that are still willing to vote for him because they hate what the Democrats represent even more. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it, you've got uh, uh, people who are driven by pure oppositional spite who will never, ever, ever be down with anything you say, no matter what you say or how you say it. But then you have another bunch of people who don't take this stuff that seriously, who don't take norms seriously, mm -hmm. who who process things through the television and through the spectacle around them, and, and for whom a guy like Trump is always going to be more captivating a figure than the bloodless technocrats of the Democratic Party. One thing that you, you discuss in the book is just the very real disconnect that people feel from the the sort of nobility of, of facts and reason and things like that. And I think the, the issue for a lot of these liberal commentators is that they have such affection for these these norms that they can't imagine someone else not having that. Yeah, no. Everyone, everyone assumes everyone else is basically like them in terms of their priors and, and, and cultural outlook, and, and that's not really true. People have generally similar people outside of the ruling class have generally similar material interests, I'd say. But there is this layer of culture and, and, and tribalism that that means that operating on the rhetorical level, where you're talking about ideas and principles instead of material realities 
is never going to communicate the way you want it to because people aren't processing it the way you assume they will. It's something that hopefully the slight resurgence of, of kind of left populism would be more more able to address since they're more outside that bubble than than a lot of the left-leaning members of office uh, as left as they go are, are really accustomed to. Well, it's so much easier, I think, to, 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 to run on, you know, five or six actual progressive or socialist uh, policies. Don't even call yourself anything if you don't want to. Doesn't have to be that. If you put that, you know, platform of uh, free college tuition, universal uh, healthcare, um, shutting down the the war industry, uh, so that the working class doesn't have to send their children to die in a desert somewhere, um, and some sort of uh, expansion of the welfare state uh, to to protect people, uh, I think you could win every single election. Yeah, absolutely. But that that would go against the the Imperatives of the party, and that's the real thing that everyone has to get in through their head. This is not a negotiable thing. These are not things that can be incorporated into the Democratic Party as it currently exists because they challenge the donor base of that party, the actual interest mm-hmm. the party serves. Uh, and, and, and like Medicare for All, we can talk about how it's supported by X number of congressmen or whatever, but it fundamentally is against the interest of a massive insurance lobby that pays mm-hmm. the bills. And that reality is not going to be changed until the structure of the party is is either completely radically changed or the party is is wigified essentially and, and collapses. Uh, and and that's where it come, the the real role of the left is coming in is, is providing alternatives and continuing to press demands beyond what is considered a reasonable center to stretch to elongate the, poss- the, the aperture of possibility. Uh, as large as possible, and create as much enough engaged citizens who want and and commit to changing it that that the out that the current structure in which political politics is essentially a professional class interest that is that operates sort of as the cat's paw of a of a very engaged and, and incredibly wealthy uh, ruling elite. Uh, that's the only way it's gonna it's gonna be able to have a, a last effective, meaningful change, and to go beyond slogans. And so, I suppose what, what that brings us to is, I mean, for those of us that are a little bit active, you know, whether or not it's, you know, anywhere from like the Sanders wing, the Democratic Party, to DSA or something like that, which is kind of like, it's having its its revived moment, I guess, because of what what happened in 2016, and uh, a lot of what I've noticed uh, about stuff that the DSA is doing, or, or or something like that. I don't know if it's getting beyond the uh, the actual either changing or dismantling of the structure of the Democratic Party, and it seems like a lot of people are sort of trapped in a, a kind of uh, reluctant entryism, which I consider to be more or less a. Uh, uh, a dead end, I think, as far as uh, practice goes. Um, but your book here is is a, is a manifesto, you know, somewhat ironically titled a manifesto. Is is that current sort of practice of, of entryism or uh, demanding the impossible so that it drags people away? Is that the uh, uh, the best route, or 
the only benefit that I've seen so far is that I think people are starting to recognize from all over the political spectrum that the enemy of uh, the liberals in this country is not the Republican Party or conservatives. The enemy of liberals is the left. Yes, and I, I do think that the current, I don't know, the, the trajectory of, of the movement is something that I honestly can't uh, predict. The big, the fundamental issue, the fundamental thing that every analysis of the situation, any kind of tactical plan, uh, has to reckon with is just how small, fragmented, and powerless the left is in this country. Uh, or labor is totally unorganized. Uh, uh, workout workplaces are unorganized. People are not politically engaged. The degree to which people who are aware of politics process politics is almost exclusively through the lens of the of electoralism. And as a result, the, the, the name of the game is numbers. It's creating more and more people. Like 50,000 50, people in DSA makes it the biggest socialist organization in the United States. That is not acceptable. That's not going to work in even the medium term. It needs to get way, way bigger, much quicker. Hmm. And the value, I think, of, of electoralism is less in actually getting people in office. It is using those campaigns which get people's attention and talk to people in the in the uh, register and in the context of politics that they are familiar with about alternatives and making them think that they can get involved. Uh, at that point, uh, the, that honestly, if we get to that point, the next step is going to be something that's going to be determined by the situation on the ground, by what's what cracks are going to be opening up. Uh, in the in the foundations of the system, as a result of the pressure being put on. Well, if it means anything, my um my older brother, who's a uh, basement dwelling, hot couch, uh, living, <laughs> uh, Gundam wing, custom model making gamer, uh, who tells people he voted for Trump because his erection told him to, actually wrote on his ballot, woo, and then in parentheses, <laughs> this is meant to be uh, understood as a vote for Ric Flair. Uh, at he at least he likes your podcast, so that's that's progress. <laughs> no, that is, those are the, like, the degree to which there's a, a, an actual real world value to the show, in my opinion, is to just make those kind of guys slightly less susceptible to becoming like Jordan Peterson or, 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 uh, or Dave Rubin Agalites or whatever. Uh, well, my dad's in a different room in the house watching Jordan Peterson videos. So. Oh boy. There's <laughs> <laughs> all kinds, there's all kinds of tension going on there. Make sure, how do you pay that? How do you, how do you, uh, once you hear that the man only eats beef, yeah, how do you take anything he says seriously? And what's funny is my dad's a vegetarian. So. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> guy's put in a month-long fugue state because he drank apple cider. He's a crank. <laughs> he should be in a, par a park bench with like a newspaper insulation in his clothing. Oh, it was apple cider? It wasn't even like hard cider? No, it was just apple cider. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I, I think, I think the fault of Jordan Peterson is is actually uh, the fault of a bunch of people who he pissed off, elevating him to a status that he never should have had. I mean, yeah, that, that but that's the, that is the nature, that is the dynamic at play now in all political media is is because the cultural terrain is really all anybody feels like they have any power to influence. People get very upset about things emerging, and 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 they want to delegitimize them, uh, mm -hmm. 
but by and yeah, in doing that, it's inevitable. I, I don't, I, I don't tiss, tiss, I don't say you shouldn't do it. It's not, it's like the tides. It's an inevitable response to the media environment we have. And then once that reaction is 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 provoked, then people now are going to flock out of oppositional desire to trigger the libs, as it were. And then they're going to listen to him. I honestly do think that in the in the even medium term, he's he's is his influence is going to wane because the the trage- he is to the degree to which he sort of resists being a genuine alt right guy. He's he's resisting the trajectory of sort of the reactionary uh, uh, web right uh and also at the end of the day these guys are going to keep cleaning the room and they're still not going to get laid and eventually they're going to get bugged it's going to bug them this guy is not getting them laid even though their rooms have been spotless for a year or whatever yeah i I spent an hour working on my lobster pose in an immaculate room and i nothing's working for me so (laughs) i'm i'm pretty sure they're going to realize that he actually doesn't have a program yeah I mean, like politically or socially or psychologically or anything like that. That's that's it's not his game. He just wants to sort of uh, tell people to stop doing things so that it can maintain whatever he thinks is the natural order of the world, which is, you know, inherently reactionary. But oh yeah, uh, I mean, literally, yeah, like, yeah. to 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 a to a invertebrate level, like right. we have to we have to we have to become just take a potato peeler to our brain until there's nothing left but. But raw instinct and an exoskeleton. Yes. Um, speaking of triggering the libs, uh, would you mind reading the uh, sort of Molly Bloom uh, broke brain of the conservative mind in the book for us? <laughs> yeah. Let me get my copy of the book. Was it supposed to be like a, I think you have, and yes, I will, yes, I said yes in here. I do have that in there, yeah. Yeah. It was inspired by, by the end of uh, Ulysses, and right. also the last words of Dutch Schultz. Uh, <laughs> famously, after he was shot, uh, he, he, he was in and out of consciousness in the hospital for, I think, a day or so before he finally succumbed to his injuries, and his last words were recorded by a police stenographer. And they are a bunch of uh, of gibberish gibberish phrases, and I sprinkled those throughout as well. I'll start with the chat, just the chat, the chapter that it begins on, uh, talking about how the first election of Obama was incre- just a violent attack on the psyche of American right wingers, and then the only thing that kind of kept them going was the knowledge that he was going to be defeated and 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 humiliated in 2012, and then when that didn't happen, the last threads of reality broke. And then he won again. Despite four years of craven appeasement and bowing and telepromptering and 57 states saying and being from Kenya and Fast and Furious movies and letting our operators die at Benghazi and lying about keeping my doctor and killing that fly and latte saluting and putting his feet up and Acorn and Candy Crowley dead and illegal voters somehow snuck that Muslim Brotherhood sleeper agent back into the White House. No more White House, more like Black House. Black as his heart, blacker and blacker into the depths of hell where no light reaches. Lost in darkness forever, the names of demons in the air, wrapped like a hip-hop barbecue. Tan suit, tan as the skin of a lost and beaten ambassador, bent at the knee. Sorry, so sorry, so, so sorry for my evil white country. Logic and proportion fallen sloppy dead. No more, no more than Hillary's witches Sabbath. Out damn spot, Vince Foster in moonlight. No hope, a lesser bush. Milk white soul, milk white blood, please clap. 
rhinoceros grazing in blank impotence. What is the sound of thunder, the rumble of horse hooves, the flowing blonde mane buffeted by wind, sword in hand, shield in hand, crimson-billed crown atop his head, fired, Obama fired, Hillary fired, America made great again, the glorious wealth orange, silken triumph, golden victory, the finest, the finest, perfect lips, perfect mouth, sneer of cold command, apprentice to Christ, commander of righteousness, lock her up, French-Canadian bean soup. Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, a rose pushing through corpses, fake news, real news, real victory, real cleansing, the wall, the wall, the wall, oh mama, oh mama, please don't tear, don't rip, jobs, 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 yes I say, yes I will, MAGA, MAGA, are you triggered, 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 are you triggered? Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so that was Matt Chrisman reading from the new book uh, from the podcast Chapo Trap House, The Chapo Guide to Revolution, A Manifesto Against Logic, Facts, and Reason. Um, uh, I guess since this is an arts podcast, we should probably ask, uh, can art change the world? Or at least it's an arts magazine, but we talk about all kinds of stuff. Can art change the world? I think it does all the time, but in ways that are too ethereal to be uh really cataloged okay and other than phenomenon what's the greatest film of all time uh gremlins 2 all right good answer <laughs> all right matt thanks very much for being with us yeah thank yeah, you thank appreciate you it and uh absolutely you plug this is uh this is a probably a boston listenership so you're going to be in town soon right we are going to be in town boston we are coming to see you uh, we will be in boston at the wilbur theater on the 14th uh, also going to be in Hamden, Connecticut on the 15th, and Pawtucket, Rhode Island on the 16th. So some uh, some New England shenanigans for you people, Anywhere, anybody who's around there. All righty. Thanks so much, Matt, for doing this. Appreciate it. Of course. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. See ya.